0: Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, and as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Help us today as, we, as your word is preached, Lord. Help us as we listen to not only be hearers of your word, but doers also. And Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would realize their need of a Savior and be saved today. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen.
1: Ephesians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning, and today we're resuming our expository uh, sermon series through this New Testament book of Ephesians. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in this letter uh, as we pause to give some emphasis and enjoyment of Advent. And so I want to just reorient us to the Apostle Paul's flow of thought so that we can better understand this portion in in, in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. If you look in uh, the earlier part of chapter 4, then notice that the Apostle Paul has been writing about God graciously giving gifts to his church so that his people will be equipped uh, to be able to build up the body of Christ. And the shared goal that God has given to his people, you see in verse 13 of chapter 4, when he says that we are all are, are pursuing this with God's gifts at work in us until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so helping each other follow Jesus so that we become like Jesus is this unified goal of the Christian church. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that you'll pay close attention to this text because these words will be a light to your path, and I think that they're going to help you enjoy God more and also enjoy greater purpose and fulfillment in life as you obey this text. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that you're going to listen carefully to this also Because in this portion of scripture, you should be able to learn more about what it means to be a Christian. And we'd encourage you to keep coming on Sundays because it'd be our delight to keep teaching to you the word of God so that you can understand all that God has done for you in Jesus. And eventually we hope that we'll have an occasion to talk with you about matters of faith one-on-one. But until that time, we'd encourage you to keep coming and keep listening to find out more about what it means to be a Christian and who Jesus is and how you can have a relationship with God. Now, in this immediate context here, what Paul's doing is he's been writing about the church, maturing together, God giving gifts to the church to help them accomplish that goal, to build up the body of Christ. And God's will is for, in verse 16, you'll see in chapter 4, verse 16, God's will is for everyone in the church to be working properly so that the body of Christ will build itself up in love. A question then is, how do God's people live like this? What is necessary for God's people to work properly so that The church is building itself up in love. I believe that part of the answer to that question is found in our text, in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. And that brings us to the main idea, then, of this portion of Scripture. The main idea is simply that Christians live out their new identity in Christ. What you're finding here in verses 17 through 24 is an invitation for Christians, a call for Christians to live out their new identity in Christ. Now, if we connect this passage with the the ones that precede it, it flows together like this. Paul has been writing for the church to mature and to be built up in love, and the church will mature, and it will be built up in love when Christians live out their true identity in Jesus. And so for today, we're going to understand that Christians are called to live out their new identity in Christ. So a little bit of a roadmap on this portion of Scripture, verses 17 to 24. Uh, We remember that Ephesians was a letter. Right, there weren't chapter and verse numbers when it was originally received. I'm thankful there's chapter and verse numbers, and you should be too now ordinarily, because it helps us find the same place together and to, to grow together in the Scriptures. But remember, this would have been ordinarily read from from cover, to cover from start to finish. And so as we look at this one little section, remember this is just a part of the whole. Now in this part, Paul writes it in two sentences. I know they're long sentences. But verses 17 through 19 is one sentence. And then verses 20 through 24 is another sentence. And so we're going to divide this section of Scripture the way Paul did in those two main thoughts. And really the first sentence describes how Christians should not live. And the second sentence describes how Christians should live. And again, all of this is an invitation for Christians to live out their identity in Christ. So, number one, in order for Christians to live out their identity in Christ, number one, Christians abandon their non-Christian mentality. This is verses 17 through 19. Christians abandon their non-Christian mentality. In verse 17, you notice he says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, so he's drawing real careful attention to the truthfulness of what he's about to say, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Now, some of these words might be a little confusing to us, especially if you're not a Christian, you don't really kind of have Christianese in your vocabulary. What does the word Gentile mean? It simply in Paul's day was a term to describe people that were not part of the people of God people who are not united to God through faith in Christ. So those that were not Christians, in other words, it would have been understood as not part of the people of God, a.k.a. Gentile. And then the word walk is a euphemism for the daily decisions of life, walking through life, the decisions we make as we live out our life. Now Paul describes those who are not part of the people of God as those who live in, and you see the phrase there that he uses in verse 17, they walk in the futility, they live in the futility of their minds this term futility uh, could be translated as the word meaningless or meaninglessness in the, this is kind of a mouthful, but in the Old, in, in the New Testament translation of the Old Testament, okay, we get that? The Old Testament was written in a different language. And they translate it into the Greek. So the New Testament translation of the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, this word is used repeatedly to describe those that don't live in the fear of the Lord. It means that according to the scriptures, the non-Christian lives in a state of mental meaninglessness because his life is not ordered around God and his purposes. Now, we need to make, there's some obvious um, uh, questions about this. We're not supposed to live as unbelievers. Well, what do you mean, Paul? I, I, you drive a car, well, so do unbelievers. Should we not drive cars? You wear blue jeans and a collared shirt. Well, I see unbelievers doing that too, so you shouldn't do that too. That's now what he's going towards. He's focusing in on the minds of unbelievers. Do you see that? Don't live in the futility of their minds. And so the motivation behind actions is what Paul is getting at. The the essence of the person in their thinking is what Paul is focusing on. And so I want to be clear, though, that this doesn't mean that non-Christians can do no good. Or they cannot make any sort of meaningful contribution to society. That's not what Paul is saying. What this means is that without ordering your life around God's eternal purpose, nothing you do has eternal significance. And so, in that perspective, in that purview of the eternal God and his his eternal word, life that is lived apart from God and not ultimately for his glory is ultimately meaningless. It doesn't matter. So, what if you make these great accomplishments in life, if you don't have a relationship with the eternal God? What kind of legacy is left if that's not if there's not a relationship with the one true Creator? And so life that is not lived in the purpose of and around the order of God is meaningless. Do you believe that? Well, Paul continues by further describing the non-Christian person. And I'm going to go through and kind of give a summary statement of of what Paul is describing here about our natural unsaved condition. And again, if you're not a Christian, um, I'm teaching this not in a sense of of trying to belittle you, but just trying to... I, I hope that this will inform you from the Scriptures and that God's Word would be a light on your path to kind of show you your pitiful condition... And I also want to assure you that I'm, I'm teaching this scriptural text and these descriptions of the unconverted person with a fresh awareness that I was just like this. And so are so many of us in this room, right? But God chose to show us mercy. And what he did is he saved pitiful creatures that are described here in Ephesians 4. And he did it not because of any works that we have done, but entirely by his grace. And so if you're not a Christian, that means that there's hope for you too. So how does Paul describe this? Uh, how Christians should not live, this futility of the unbelieving mind. In verse 18, he describes it as a mind that is darkened. This is the universal condition of all people apart from faith in Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, describes this reality of sin, darkness in the mind, in the person, as this way. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This is 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 4 to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's the creative decree of God. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But that text shows that apart from God graciously shining the light of the gospel into a sin-darkened heart, we will remain in the spiritual state of spiritual darkness. And don't misunderstand People choose to live in that state of darkness. On our own, we are not trying to find the light. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 3, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. He goes on in verse 18, and he describes it not just darkened, but spiritually ignorant. You see the words that he uses there? They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness. This Alienation from God is because unbelievers are possessed by a deep ignorance of God. And this ignorance is a volitional choice in each person. That's why it's a sin. In other words, we should know better, but we, in our natural unredeemed state, we defy the knowledge of God. We suppress the truth of God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, describe this condition in us as people in our natural state. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to just the world at large, right? Because God has shown it to them. And you might be saying, well, how has God shown it to us? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. There's our word in Ephesians. futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul continues in verse 19 to describe this unconverted state. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Another description is callously living with insatiable desires. This is the unbelieving condition. Callously living with insatiable desires. It describes this person as being desensitized and therefore given over to uh, insatiable desires. And and so in futility, what this means is in futility, we we pursue pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment. But because no sinful act will ever satisfy our hearts, this path leads into deeper and deeper expressions of twisted distortions of God's good things. You can read about that more in Romans chapter 1. But notice in verse 22, Paul describes this way of living as corrupt through deceitful. Sorry, not verse 22. He describes it, but um, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so, in, am I right? to um, Every kind of impurity is what they're pursuing. And this idea of the deceitfulness of sin, this, this hardness of heart, this callousness of giving one up to these pursuits and these pleasures... It proves to us to the lie of what sin offers to us. Sin is always deceitful. It never lives up to what what um, what it tells us that it will give to us. In the inner recesses of our person, we hear the offer of satisfaction in sin, but yet it never carries out what it promises. This is why it is only by knowing God and enjoying Him forever that we will find ultimate satisfaction. That's why the psalmist David was able to write in Psalm 16, you make known to me, you, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what are we to do with this description, right? Paul's going through in Ephesians chapter 4, he's writing about how um, this um, life of those that don't know God is, should not be the characteristic of those that do know God, and he describes it. What are we supposed to do with it? Well, if you're not a Christian, maybe you thought being a Christian means you have to give up everything that you think brings you pleasure right now. Maybe that's your perspective of Christianity. As if Christians miss out on the pleasures that the world has to offer. But just imagine, okay, if you're non believer, if you're not a Christian, you don't know God through Christ, just imagine, right? The, the, the three most powerful kind of temptations can be lumped into the idea of 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 money, of of sex, and of, of power. We'll just take those three general categories. Imagine using your money. Imagine if your use of money was aligned with the eternal purposes of God so that you would spend it according to those purposes. Imagine how pleasurable and satisfying and fulfilling it would be to spend money like that. Or imagine if your sexual activity was aligned with God's purposes and was protected and encouraged by God's good design of covenant marriage between man and wife. Imagine the the pleasure and satisfaction of body and of soul that God might offer to those who obey his commands in this sphere of life. Or imagine your use of power and influence in the world. Imagine if that was aligned with God's good purposes. Imagine how fulfilling it would be to steward and apply influence and power for eternal purposes and for God's glory. You see, the world is enticing us to those spheres of temptation for selfish pursuits. But yet the heart of Christianity is the good news that God rescues us from this futile, dark, and callous-mindedness. He rescues sinners like us, and he gives us new life, which means he gives us new purposes for the enjoyment and the use of those good things so that we can enjoy God forever. So if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking Christianity is just kind of all, all these restrictions. In fact, see, Paul says, don't live like those unbelievers. But was there anything attractive to the way that Paul described unbelievers? Darkened, futile, callous, desensitized, insatiable pursuit of pleasures that never satisfy. That's why Paul is saying to his Christian readers, don't live like that. Don't live in that futile mindedness. Christian, you may wonder, what does this text have to do with you? There's probably numerous ways to have that be life-giving to you. But here's just one suggestion Has God's Spirit revealed an area in your life where you have fallen back into the mentality of non-Christian feudal-mindedness? Are there areas of your life that express a a feudal-mindedness instead of a Christian-mindedness? Are you tasting the futility of trying to make some good thing from God into an ultimate thing? So in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, that first sentence he writes, Paul wants everyone to understand that non-Christians live this way because they do not have a relationship with God through Jesus. And for me to show that to you, I got to connect this up into verse 20 because that's where he's driving this this statement. He's writing about the futility of the unbeliever. Christians should not live like that. And that all hinges in verse 20 where that, that, that contrast is given. You see that? But that is not the way you learn Christ, exclamation mark, right? You can almost hear him kind of appealing to his readers, but that's not how you learn Christ. He's driving that the reason that Christians don't live this way is because they have learned Christ. They have a relationship with Jesus. This is not an abstract learning about Jesus like you're reading the spec sheet on your refrigerator, right? Now you know how to operate that thing. Jesus is not a refrigerator that has a spec sheet. He's a person that you are related to. This learning Christ is kind of unusual, the phrasing of it. Typically, we learn about things. We don't learn people that direct way. And that's why Paul is, is trying to highlight this idea of this personal knowledge of, of firsthand experience of him in your life as your Savior. And herein lies the power of the Christian life, of being related to Jesus, having the feudal mindedness that you had before, this meaningless mindset of life, being replaced with this new creation that you are given through faith in Christ. So I just kind of explore this idea with me a little bit, right, about how relationship affects our mindset that's where Paul's driving in this text. Your relationship with those you love fundamentally changes your mindset, your mentality. We, we understand this kind of um, just generally, but kind of just let's enjoy teasing this out a little bit. There are things that we will do or we won't do entirely based on our relationship with someone we love. In fact, it's one of the expressions of love. Uh, If you have a family member, here's just one one idea, one illustration. If you have a family member who is highly allergic to peanuts, you probably will not buy peanut butter and bring it home, even if you love peanut butter. You probably won't do that. Because your relationship with the one you love has fundamentally altered your mentality towards peanut butter. And so you are saying, no, I'm going to deny myself that. I'm going to live in line with the relationship of love with, with this person. And you can use that in all sorts of different spheres of life. We all do this in all the time with people that are in our lives that we love. We change our behavior purely based upon the relationship of love that we have with the person. And the same is true for Christians. That's where Paul's driving. Don't live like a non-Christian. Why? Because you know Jesus. You've learned him. That's why. And he's rescued you from this old way of life. The same is true for Christians. So a Christian relationship with Jesus is what fundamentally changes who they are. That's why the main idea of this whole text is driving out your identity in Christ. You've learned Christ. And that leads to the second part, there Paul goes when he instructs Christians how they must live out their new identity in Christ. Before we move on, I just want to make sure that we just pause and let the the, the wonderment of being of, of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ freshly affect our hearts. If Jesus is just some abstract lawmaker, restrictor, person, force in your life, friends, you've not learned Christ as you ought. He has loved you, and it's what you sang about this morning, that he took on himself all your sin, not part, all. You wouldn't be willing to take on all of your sin. But Christ did this so that you could enjoy relationship with him. This is how generous God is. This is how glorious he is in giving out delight. This is the one who loves you. And so Christian student or college person or or young adult, as you start looking at the temptations of the world that are exerting forces in your life, and they're powerful, and we pray for you. But friends, the best thing for you is to just reorient yourself to the power of that you are related to God through Jesus. He knows you. He loves you. And he's invited you to love him. And so therefore, as he shows you the way of life, as he shows you the path forward, it's not a law of restrictions. It's an invitation for enjoying him more. And that's what eternity will be, enjoying God forever. So how Christians should not live is with the futile-mindedness of an unbelieving mind. How should Christians live? Well, second part, verses 20 through 24, Christians live out their new identity in Christ. And Paul grounds his next words of instruction on the fact that Christians are people who have learned Christ. Verse 20... And those exhortations that he gives about uh, you've learned Christ, and then he says you need to put off, verse 22. In verse 23, he says you need to be renewed. And then in verse 24, he says you need to put on. Those three exhortations, put off, be renewed, and put on, I believe are the content of what they've learned about Jesus. So in other words, if you have learned Jesus in this saving way, it's going to flow out of your life with these behaviors, with these expressions, if I can use that word. You're going to be putting off, you're going to be renewed, and you're going to be putting on. And that's what we're going to finish up today. And we're going to go in this order. We're going to talk about putting off. Then we're going to talk about putting on because those are two sides of the same coin. They go together. This isn't like you get to choose one of these three. And we hope you choose all three. But if you're kind of a, you know, like a beginner Christian, just choose one. Media Christian, choose two of them. You know, really high value Christian, then you're going to do all three. That's not how it works. These are all together. And they flow out of a person who has learned Christ. Put off your old self. In verse, uh, in verse 22 this uh, exhortation put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires as we look at these three exhortations put off be renewed put on we need to consider the other biblical instruction on this topic because there's a little bit of some tension for our understanding and what i mean by that is here's a parallel passage for us in colossians chapter 3 in verses 9 and 10 Paul writes it this way, do not lie to one another, seeing, or here's the reason, since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Colossians, it seems to be saying that we have already put off the old self. But Ephesians seems to be calling for us as Christians presently to put off the old self. So how do we reconcile those different verb tenses? Does that make sense? In, in one area, it's, he's telling Christians have already put off the old self, past tense. But in Ephesians, it seems like he's saying Christians need to put off the old self, which would be present tense, right? So which one is it, Paul? Has it already happened or does it need to happen? I believe the answer is yes. I believe what's happening here in Colossians and Ephesians, you could look in Romans chapter 6 for more detail about this if you wanted. I think what we have here is an expression of the already and not yet nature of the Christian life. That there are realities for the Christian life that are True and also waiting to be true all at the same time. And if you're not a Christian, you're like, oh, man, see, you Christians are weird. But this is the glory of what God has done for us. So, for instance, Christians are saved, and we are being saved, and we will one day be, be saved in that, in that fullest sense of, of enjoying the glorification of knowing God face to face. And I think that's what's happening here. In fact, earlier in this letter, this happened uh, when Paul was praying in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. It's probably just a page or a screen or two over for you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But why would Paul be writing to Christians that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? Didn't Christ already dwell in their hearts through faith? Yes. What Paul is praying for is that the Christ who dwells in their hearts through faith would more and more move into their lives so they would more deeply embrace Jesus in faith. The already, yes, he's in your life through faith— and then, not yet, you need him more and more. You need to embrace him more fully in faith. This is the idea of putting off this old self. Putting on the new self is the flip side of it. And I, by the way, for sake of time, I'm not going to rehash what all are you putting off? We could, but I think you, you need to just look back at what he wrote about the unbelieving condition. Put all that off. Your insatiable pursuit of these desires as if they're going to fulfill you. No. Now you're related to Jesus. And what are we to put on, then, as Christians? Well, Paul says that we are to be putting on this new self. So since Christians put off the old self, then they will be putting on this new self. So at its core, Christianity is not about rules and regulations. It's about living who you truly have been made to be. That's why Christianity is, you know, they use the terms being born again. I know sometimes that sounds really, like, old-fashioned, like, weird Christian, but it's simply referring to this whole new person that God creates through faith. This isn't a... Christianity is not a moralistic self-help religion. Like, if you just try harder, if you just kind of follow these little rules and regulations and kind of order your life according to this, then then you'll achieve this kind of success in life. No. No, Jesus is the Savior of people, not self-help. That's why Paul is writing to them, talking to them about their relationship with God through Jesus, and he tells them that you've learned Christ. And what does that mean? It means you've learned Christ... And you're going to be putting on the new self, verse 24, which is created, right, after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We don't create it. God does. We don't create this Christian person through our hard work of self-helpism. God gives to us this new creation, this new identity in Christ, which is why Paul says don't live like the old unconverted mind. Live as who you are. Somebody who has a relationship with Jesus. Putting on at its core Christianity isn't about rules and regulations. In verse 24 Paul tells us reader to put on this new self and this righteousness and holiness of God is what replaces the feudal mindedness of the unbelieving mind. This is dramatic. It's so dramatic that Paul could describe this experience this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the putting off, to borrow Romans language, Romans 6. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is, the, this, this is a man who is understanding this putting off and putting on of this Christian life. Scan through Ephesians Chapter 4, verses 25 and following. This is the future text that we get to look forward to as a church family. Just look at some of these commands that are flowing out of a person who is captured by the relationship with Jesus so that they're putting off, they, they, they have put off, and they are putting on, they have put on this new mindedness of being identified with Jesus. I mean, it describes people that speak truth, they're not angry at one another in sinful ways. They're not giving opportunity to the devil. They're not stealing. Instead, they're doing honest work so they can be generous to others. They're not speaking with corrupt mouths in verse 29, but they're building people up with their words. They're they're, they're not grieving the Spirit of God in verse 31. They're not giving way to bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor, but instead, verse 32, they're being kind and forgiving to one another. How forgiving? As forgiving as Jesus was to you. Mind blown, right? Where does that come from? You've learned Christ. You've learned Christ. That's where that comes from. This is a new and transformed way of living. It's radical. So then, how do Christians think and feel and act in such a way that expresses who we truly are? How do we live out this new identity in Christ, right? I mean, this is all just kind of like workshop bubble right now, right? You ever been been that like a work, you go to a workshop and you little bubble of all these great ideas and do this and do this and life will be great. Then you walk out the doors and it's like, like reality just crashes in on you. How are we going to how do we live this out as Christian people? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I believe a Christian lives lives the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self by means or through the agency of their minds being renewed. Now there's a little bit of Uh, Debate on if the word "spirit" in verse twenty-three should be little s or big s. In in big s spirit, would be referring to the Holy Spirit. I don't think it really matters a whole lot as far as the the application of it. It might be the Spirit of God. Some translations render it that way, and they've got some pretty good textual help on that because Paul has been praying for these believers to know the power of God's Spirit in their lives. But it could be that it's a small s, which is how the English Standard Translation um, translates it, because it could be talking about a reference of the immaterial essence of a personality being renewed by God's power so much that when they think about money and power and work and family and whatever else, that they're fundamentally Christ-centered and God-ordered in their thinking about it. That's why I said the, the result of it is pretty much the same. Paul describes his own experience of spiritual renewal In 2 Corinthians, he describes it this way in chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. And that little phrase is hard to appreciate just pulling this text out here in the middle of it. But if you read in this context, they went through some horribly horrific hard things. But he sums it up and says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is, here's the tie in with Ephesians 4, is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's a description of somebody who is put off and put on and has this God mindedness that's in place of the feudal mindedness, the, the life of righteousness and true holiness that God creates in his people. So how do Christians renew the mind then, right? How does this happen? Now, some of you might have the cynical mind and say, oh, here it comes. Read your Bible and pray. And the answer to the question, how do you renew your mind, isn't that simple. It's not just go home, read your Bible, and pray, and you'll have a renewed mind. No, I I don't believe the answer is that simple, as if we can boil it down to just a single, uh, a single, you know, checklist. And by the way, we can't checklist our way to spiritual maturity either. (laughs) We can't. So remember, the entire reason anyone can put off the old self, have put on the new self, is because of the saving acts of God in them, giving them relationship to God through Jesus. It's only because we've learned Christ that we are now a new creation, that we can live for Christ in these ways. It's grace. But having said that, of course you're not going to renew your mind if you're not having Bible intake, and if you're not communing with the one whom you are related to, Jesus, in prayer. You're not going to have a renewed mind if you abandon that. So yes, Um, baseline read your bible and pray yes in fact we'd love to help you with that we would want we want as elders for this church family to ordinarily be a people who read their bibles we want to encourage you in that Uh, there's a link in the bulletin uh, of a list of various kind of plans that you can choose from all sorts of kinds some that read a lot of the bible some that read a little bit of the bible our heart for you though is that we as a church family be a people who read their bibles and we try to help you with that on sunday mornings which is One of the reasons why we read scriptural texts between our songs we want you to be reading God's word. Why? Because the word of God is what gives life to the church. It renews the mind. Communion with the Lord in prayer renews the mind. But there's other ways that we can be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And you've done it already this morning. You're here on a Sunday morning on a Lord's Day. Gathered. Again, it gets down to motivation. Is Is a list motivating you to read your Bible and pray and show up at church? Or is it relationship with the one who loves you and gave himself for you, motivating you to gather with the people of God, to read the word of God, and to pray to a a loving, holy God? But how about like 2020? This is the last Sunday in 2019, new decade coming. Here, I'm not promoting New Year's resolutions. I know we could debate on that for a while. But just imagine what it might be like if we all said, you know, Lord, I'm going to make your church, your people, a top priority this year. I'm not talking about just showing up. It it can't be any less than that, right? You can't help people you're never with. You can't encourage people you're never around. What about making God's people a top priority in 2020 so that you're seeking relationships and pursuing them to encourage their faith, praying for them, letting them know that, developing, working at it, like networking in the people of God for the building up of the people of God. Again, again, don't, don't hear me giving you a checklist of here's how you renew your mind. These are suggestions of what this might look like, of the ways that God has given his people to find their minds renewed. When the church family gathers together weekly through rhythms of reading God's word and praying God's word and hearing God's word preached, it has a renewing effect. Or one of the strategies that we have as a church family to renew our minds is through our equipping electives. That's why we offer classes on Sundays after the services ordinarily it's and we do it on on subjects topics and things like family and marriage and singleness or worry or hospitality or money we do that on various topics because we want as a church family to be renewing our minds about those topics so that we approach them and think about them and live them out in uniquely christian ways because that's how we fulfill our mission as a church which is which is to display god's glory you can display god's glory in how you spend your money you can display God's glory in how you raise a family. You can display God's glory in how you live out singleness and how you use your home or your resources for hospitality. Yes, we believe it, and we want to renew our minds in those ways, which is one of the reasons we have equipping classes. Here's an invitation. Consider joining a class. And again, this isn't a list. Got to show up, and be there, and sit down. Is it? No, what's the motivation? Would you read your Bible in 2020 so that you would know God better, to enjoy Him more deeply? Would you, would, you, would you just try out spending time in prayer? Not because it's a list you've got to check off, but so that you would bow in humble submission before a holy God so that he would renew your mind as you meditate on his word and the works he has done for you through Jesus. Would you be eager to gather with God's people? Maybe the thing for you is just making, diff- making changes on your Saturday nights so that you can be more mentally aware on a Sunday so that you actually care about people rather than just trying to stay awake. I know I'm speaking hyperbolically, right? Anybody who's sleeping right now is suddenly feeling very bad. I don't see anybody sleeping. (laughs) But just the simple things of this priority of expressing how have you learned Christ, Ephesians 4.20. How have you learned Christ? So, if you're wondering what action you should take in this, you say, well, you just told me some actions. Those are just some suggested applications. They might fit, they might not. I think the main application from this text is this, believe it. Believe it. Will you believe that through faith in Christ, God has been pleased in his mercy and grace to create in you a new person that is created, you see it in verse 24, that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There was one exhortation, one application I could make from this text, it would be that. Believe this. And then watch how God transforms all these other areas of your life as you believe that you have been created in Christ after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And if you're not a Christian, that's what it means to be a Christian. You are invited to repent and believe so that God would make you like that too. Let's bow our heads I'm going to ask our music team to come forward as they help us sing a song of response. The rest of us are going to take a moment of silent reflection. Consider what you have heard. Consider what God has written to you. Talk to him about what you are learning. If he has shown an area for you to repent, then do so. Listen to the kindness of God. Let him lead you to repentance where you must. If you're not a Christian, why not? Why are you still rejecting his love? After a few moments of quiet reflection, I'll close us with prayer, and then the team will help us sing a song of response.